The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, TruthFinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. TruthFinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who is known in the OTR realm as Young Nasty Man. Here is the captain. Well, it's nice to meet you all. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today, we are still sipping on some Lost Galaxy IPA by Lost Nation Brewing. This is a Wheat Sessions IPA with a crisp, silky malt body, some hop bitterness, and loads of tropical fruit to finish. Garage grade four out of five bottle caps. And let's give some cheers and thanks to our good friends for helping us out. First up, a big Ron Swanson please and thank you goes out to Denise in Duval, Washington. And a big we like your jib to Aaron in Binghampton, New York. Next up, here's a cheers to Megan B. in Williston, North Dakota. And a big shout out to Kathy in Vancouver, Washington. Here we go, Captain. We got a cheers to Eric LeClaire in Parts Unknown. And last but certainly not least, we have Jake Alo also in Parts Unknown. Everyone we just mentioned, well, they went to truecrimegarage.com and they helped us out with this week's beer fund for the beer run and the fridge is full and for that we thank you yeah b-w-e-w-r-u-n beer run get you some make sure you go to our website sign up on the mailing list we like to send you some promo codes here and there also go to itunes leave us a five-star review and like always Make sure you tell a friend. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody. Gather around. Grab a chair. Grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Tonight, 10 news sources are revealing new details to us about the desert crime scene where the bodies of the McStay family from Fallbrook were discovered. We have been breaking every development on this case since yesterday and new tonight. 10 News reporter Preston Phillips reveals what was done to one of the bodies before it was buried in a shallow grave. Two sets of remains, primarily intact, and clothing found in two different shallow graves here just off the 15 north of Victorville. Confirmed by authorities through dental records, it's the McStays, a Fallbrook family of four who mysteriously disappeared back in February of 2010. At a Friday morning news conference, McStay family members fought to hold back tears. My family appreciates all the support and the love that... We've been shown. Authorities would not say how Joseph, Summer, and their two sons were killed and wouldn't speculate as to who may have killed them. 
Law enforcement expert John Carmen says the shallow graves the McStays were found in and their close proximity to a busy freeway tells him it wasn't a professional hit. If it was real important, they'd probably go deeper or do worse. They were in a hurry. And once they're on 15, north or south, they're out of there. Did Joey have enemies? Maybe a couple. Were they the kind of enemy that would want to kill him? I I didn't see that. Rick Baker, author of No Goodbyes, The Mysterious Disappearance of the McStay Family, says even his law enforcement sources close to the McStay case are keeping the details of their deaths close to the vest, but says one did tell him one thing that was done to one of the bodies. That one of the bodies, either Summer or Joseph, their hands had been bound. Meantime, Baker tells 10 News he's pulled his book from Amazon.com and taken down his online blog. All of that was to find the McStays. It's strange for me. I'm almost in a grieving process. I always believed that there would be one day that I would meet at least one of them and be able to talk to them and see the kids. Preston Phillips, 10 News. Sheriff's investigators would not say what kind of clothing and other personal items were found inside the graves, but they did say the evidence recovered will help complete this investigation. You heard it there from the good people at ABC 10 News that unfortunately the mixed days were found and they were not found alive and well. They were found buried in shallow graves. To add a little more context to what it was that was found and how it was located in the state in which these bodies were found, we have some information from fox8.com which says the McStays, Joseph Summer, and their sons Gianni, age four, and Joseph Jr., age three, were ruled to have been bludgeoned to death with a sledgehammer and buried in shallow graves in the high desert outside of Victorville, which is northeast of Los Angeles. I would say the best way to describe this location is it's a desert valley, basically, very vast, but Mm -hmm. also connected pretty close to a major highway and the whole valley is overlooked by this hillside. It looks to me, Captain, like the grave sites, if you will, were located, what, about a quarter of a mile off of this main highway? And when you look at the area in the way that you described it, I think is perfect. It makes total sense to me why people on dirt bikes or off-road motorcyclists would want to be out in this area cruising around having a good time. It's wide open spaces out there. And the call to authorities to let them know that they found some human remains. They're asking, well, what's the location? And the guy says, man, there's no paved roads out here. This is a location that law enforcement said there is no reason to be out here. Authorities would tell us that in November of 2013, when the McStay family's skeletal remains were found in two shallow graves in the desert, that none of the victims were wearing shoes. All died from blunt force trauma. Summer and son Gianni were found in grave B, as investigators dubbed it. In grave A were found Joseph and Joseph Jr., Grave B also held what authorities say was the murder weapon, a three-pound Stanley sledgehammer. This is one of the short-handle sledgehammers. Yeah, and law enforcement believes that this murder weapon came from inside the family's home. Joseph and Summers' skulls had been smashed multiple times. The boys' skulls were fractured as well. Gianni as many as seven times. Joseph had a broken leg and broken rib. He was tied with an extension cord and wrapped in a futon cover, which again believed to be taken from the Fallbrook house. A few things that law enforcement learned right away is the McStays didn't go missing on their own accord. And with the evidence of possibly this family going across the Mexican border, that that's not true either. And we also had family members at this time saying that they didn't believe that that was the McStays going across the border. Right, and at this time, it would be very difficult for us to believe that it was, in fact, the McStays that were spotted on camera going across the border because 
it would be awfully hard to believe that they up and left their home in a state where it looks like they just left in the middle of all this action and activity going on, mm-hmm. food on the counter, uneaten food out, half-eaten food out, the dogs tethered in the backyard and unfed, and that they went across the border, parked their vehicle illegally. It was later towed on the 8th, and then they walked back across the border unnoticed, and then somebody murdered them and buried them in the desert. It just seems too far-fetched for that to be the scenario. So, What we will be told by authorities is that they say that they have reason to believe that the McStays were attacked and killed in their home before being transported, their remains transported out to the desert and then buried in those two shallow graves labeled Grave A and Grave B. Now, one point of evidence that they say points to that is the sledgehammer itself, that three-pound sledgehammer. So the sledgehammer... They say they believe it came from the family home or the thought is that at least at one point it was at the home. And their reason for stating that is that Summer McStay, when she was unearthed, when her body was found and unearthed, she was not wearing a top or a shirt. Her bra was found spattered with paint. That paint color matched paint found in the McStay home. And that sledgehammer that was found in the grave with the victims contained smears of that same paint. So there's a lot of things kind of tying victim murder weapon back to the McStay family home. Yeah. And so what we can surmise from that is the last known communications would have happened around the 4th of February. They believe the murder took place close to to the 4th of February. And that's absolutely correct. And the thing here, though, Captain, is we got a situation where we just went from a missing persons investigation with no leads, dead ends, really an investigation that had gone cold by this point, to now, boom, we got a quadruple homicide investigation that we are working. And San Diego County is going to transfer all of their information and all of their missing persons investigation to San Bernardino County where the bodies were recovered. So now we have a new agency with fresh eyes taking a new look at this, and they have one added advantage. They know what happened to the McStay family. They don't know who's responsible or how it happened, but they do know that the four were murdered and that they just didn't get up and leave on their own. Well, now that we have four murder victims... We have something that you don't have in a voluntary missing person case. We now have suspects. That's correct. And I have a list of people here, Captain, and I can't say to what varying degree that these individuals would be considered to be suspects by law enforcement. But I know that these are people that were interviewed and looked at and their movements in February, early February of 2010, their activities their cell phone records, all of this stuff became very important to law enforcement when interviewing all of these air quotes, potential suspects. So I can read these off to you. The list that I've created in no particular order. We have Vic Johansson, Michael McFadden, Dan Cavanaugh, Michael McStay, and Charles Chase Merritt. And I do know that we're going to have to fill in the listeners on some of these individuals as we've not introduced them to the listeners yet. These are new names. So starting at the top of my list, we have Vic Johansson. Who is he? Well, he is a former boyfriend of Summer McStay and someone that had reached out to her on occasion over the years. This guy was also not considered to be a saint by anybody out there. And so he was interesting to law enforcement because here's the thing. When we talk about the McStay family, right? We have the situation where Joseph McStay, he's, he's regarded by everybody as this super nice, casual guy. He's kind of the laid back surfer dude. And it's said over and over again by multiple people. This guy didn't have an enemy. This guy had nobody that hated him. Nobody that disliked him. Nobody that would want to hurt him. Unfortunately, when you find a guy murdered and buried in the desert, 
you know that that statement is not exactly true. There's at least one person that would have wanted to hurt Joseph McStay for one reason or another. Right. That's a fact, Jack. Now, the flip side of that coin is his wife, Summer, who does not share the same personality as her husband, Joseph. She's a little more forward. She's a little more aggressive. She's a little more protecting her own. And so there were people that said, you know what? There were people out there that had a problem with Summer, but nobody seemed to have a problem with Joseph. So now you got to look at this thing and go, okay, well, I don't believe. And until we have a situation where we have an Aurora Hammerslayer guy or a family annihilator that just happened to come in in the middle of the night and wipe out a whole family, which those scenarios are rare and few and far between, thank God. Unless you have one of those situations, you have somebody that had a beef with somebody in this mixed day family and you, the boys are little, they're young boys. So the beef probably didn't happen with Gianni or Joey jr. No, it was with one of the parents and likely you have a scenario where something happened to one of them and then somebody had to wipe out the rest of the family. And so when you look at this, you go, okay. Who could have had a beef with Summer? Who could have had a beef with Joseph? Well, this Vic Johansson, former boyfriend, was somebody that was considered to have a beef and to be weird and potentially violent and somebody that came onto the police's radar via friends and family. Well, he was also arrested in a building that was connected to... Joseph's business. Yeah, Joseph's business. And so he did have uh, a record and had, you know, when you're looking at this horrible crime, you go, well, it's somebody with a temper. It's somebody that is capable of committing a crime like this. And, and he had a bunch of red flags that you have to put him on the list. Yeah. And he had other things of being kicked out of bars for, you know, vulgar or loud activity where he's getting aggressive with people. And he was, he was known to be in the area, living somewhat in the area at the time of their disappearance. But the problem with him is they don't seem to have a whole lot to move on this guy. And so let's keep him in the back of our mind. Let's keep him on our list and continue on down our list of suspects. Next, we have Michael McFadden. He, too, is another individual that we've not yet introduced to our story. How does he fit in? Well, he is Joseph's ex-wife's husband. So Joseph McStay was previously married to another woman before he was married to Summer. And the two of them had a son together. Well, this man, Michael McFadden, is now Joseph's ex-wife's husband and the stepfather to Joseph McStay's oldest son. Now, Joseph McStay is still very much in the life of his oldest son, and there are outings and gatherings where both couples will be present. Mom and her new husband are present, and dad and his new wife are present. And at some point, something happened where this Michael McFadden decided maybe he didn't like Joseph too much. Maybe he didn't like Summer too much. There's an altercation, a verbal altercation, where Michael McFadden tells Joseph, if you don't muzzle your wife, I will gladly come to your house and kick your ass and muzzle her for you. Yeah, if anybody ever said that about my wife, they would be walking around with no teeth. If anybody ever said that about my wife, I would remove the muzzle and let her go. Yeah. (laughs) She can take care of herself. (laughs) So Michael McFadden is looked at. He's interviewed. But the problem is similar with him. I don't think they could put him in the area. It's not that they... It's not that they can say he wasn't in the area. It's more of a, well, we can't put him in the area around the time that we believe that they went missing or that they were attacked. Well, and you have to think about this. Law enforcement has something to their advantage. You have two locations. You need to put that individual roughly at that house on the 4th, and then you have to put them in a whole separate location 100 miles away. So this guy does have a, a history, but like he states in his interview with law enforcement, that history is, that criminal history is from long ago. And when I was younger, when I was dumb and 
and my life is different now. I'm a businessman. I'm a family man. I'm not the same person as I was. I think his comments are out of line, but we've all said stupid things when we get heated and we're, we're in an argument with somebody. The other thing, though, Captain, Summer does not strike me as the person who would have taken a backseat to anybody. So we also don't know what she may have said to this Michael McFadden character. In fact, it could be worse than what he said about her later. But yes, you're exactly right. That's the situation that we have. We have to be able to put our suspect or suspects. Remember, we got four victims here. And I... I have a hard time in this case looking at it and going, there's only one person that could pull this off. But we have to be able to put our suspect or suspects at their home around the time that we believe that they were attacked or went missing and then put them 70, roughly 70 miles away where we know that the bodies were eventually recovered. Somebody moved them to that spot. If in fact the authorities are correct in their statement that we believe that the McStays were attacked and killed in their home. So that brings us to number three. And I'm going to, I'm going to leapfrog somebody on my list here. No, not go in the exact same order. And that'll be clear as to the reason why here in just a minute. But my next suspect that would be on the list is the brother Mike McStay and I and I hate this is a person that I hate to put on the list he's somebody that if in fact he's innocent then he is hurting he's a victim's family member he was very close with his brother or at least at one time I question how close he was at the time of the disappearance but he was close with them and then we have his father Patrick who does not seem to get along real well with Michael McStay but is quick to defend his son and saying, hey, he would never hurt his brother. He loved his brother, always loved his brother. But furthermore, I don't think he could hurt anyone. I don't think he could kill a potential enemy, let alone somebody that he was once close with. So Michael McStay, he's interesting for a couple of reasons, and we've already pointed some of them out. One, the taking of the computer. Two, being able to access their locked home. And then we have this weird situation of when he's interviewed, he tells police when asked, did you go over to their home on the fourth? He gives a vague answer of, yeah, I was around their home. I went by their home. It was either February 4th or February 6th, 2010. Right. So that by his own admission puts him in the area, puts them in, it puts him in the area of their home around the time of the attack. Well, and we also have neighborhood surveillance that puts a white truck or utility type truck or a white SUV. It's, it's look, the, the video footage is absolutely dog shit. It's so, worse than the video of the four people seen walking across the port. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, we can find doorways on Mars, but we can't get, decent surveillance footage on here on earth. So, well, let's, let's give a better description of that. Shall we? No, since we're <laughs> in the moment, this comes from surveillance footage from a neighbor's home security camera. And the neighbor provides this to police. This is after police go around and canvas the area asking, has anybody seen anything? Do you have any home security cameras? Could we take a, take a look at it? So on and so forth. This will later be called the, Mitchley video or referred to as the Mitchley video and this on this surveillance footage the footage comes from February 4th 2010 again this is the day that the, it's believed that they were attacked and killed at 7 47 p.m. just like the captain said this video shows what others not the colonel here not old eagle eyes here what others say is a white truck or SUV driving past this neighbor's home, exiting from the McStay family home. Now, there's been plenty of people to say we cannot confirm that it was exiting the McStay family home. At one point, when they were still simply missing, it was thought that this could be Joseph McStay's Isuzu Trooper. It could have been his vehicle. Mm-hmm. And they say that you see a white truck or a white SUV. I'll tell you what. I watched that damn clip. It's it's a real quick clip. It's in the dark. 
I can't see anything. It's, it's all black and white from what I can tell. And all I see are headlights and reflectors. I don't see anything other than headlights and reflectors. I couldn't make out a color of a vehicle, a shape of a vehicle, anything. I actually think it's very possible that it's the McStay's family vehicle. I agree with you. Because somebody has to transport that vehicle. They yes. At some point, they have to take that vehicle. But meaning that at some point, they have to drive a vehicle and then they have to get back somehow. So a tandem driver. Either they had some help. As I pointed out earlier, I have a hard time believing that only one person carried out this these horrific crimes and all the methods and, and ways to try to cover it up. Or got an Uber driver, had him drop you off a block or two from the McStay home. If it were me and I had to do this thing solo, not that I ever would, but if I did do something like this, I probably would put my vehicle in their garage to conceal it. And I'm with you. I would use their own vehicle knowing that I'm going to ditch it someplace later elsewhere that I would use their vehicle to transport them out to that spot in the desert. So it's really hard to say what it is that we are seeing there. I don't know what I'm seeing. I don't see anything of evidentiary value other than it looks like some type of vehicle is leaving from the McStays at 747 p.m., on the day that it's believed that they were attacked. That leaves us with two more suspects here, Captain, that we didn't get to, and I leapfrogged one of them simply because these other two fall into a similar basket to me, and that's because they're both involved and they both work with Joseph McStay. And so that is his business associate, Charles Chase Merritt, who is the builder and manufacturer of these water features, as well as Dan Cavanaugh, who is his one-time business partner who's being in the process of being bought out from the company. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. 
All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. On November 11th, 2013, skeletal remains were recovered in the county area of Victorville and were confirmed to be that of the McStay family. Our homicide investigation began immediately and the identity to find the identity of the suspect of this horrible crime and bring that responsible person to justice. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department turned over nearly 4,500 pages of investigative material that was reviewed by our detectives. 60 search warrants were served and over 200 interviews were conducted. Investigators received about 250 tips and anonymous calls and followed up on every one of them. As the investigation progressed, the district attorney's office was involved and consulted. Investigators from our department would like to make a special thank you to Special Agent Kevin Bowles of the FBI for his assistance in this investigation. Charles Chase Merritt was identified as the suspect responsible for the death of Joseph, Summer, Gianni, and Joseph McStay. There's no information to suggest there were any other suspects involved in this crime. Chase Merritt was a business associate of Joseph McStay. The cause of death was determined to be blunt force trauma and based on the entire investigation and the evidence obtained, investigators believe these murders occurred at their residence in Fallbrook. Investigators are not disclosing the motive for the murder at this point. Merritt was arrested on Wednesday, November 5th without incident, transported and booked at our West Valley Detention Center where he is currently being held. I want to thank all the investigators who spent countless hours in this case. Less than a year ago, 
I made a promise to the family that our department would do everything in our power to solve this case. And although we can never bring them back, I hope that this provides some level of closure. It's now my honor to introduce the District Attorney of San Bernardino County, Mike Ramos. All right, we are back. Cheers, mate. Cheers to you, Colonel. Cheers to you, Captain. And just a quick reminder to everyone out there that's listening to this on Wednesday, May 25th. Today is National Missing Children's Day. President Ronald Reagan proclaimed May 25th, 1983, the first National Missing Children's Day in memory of Eaton Pats. And very fitting that this case is being reviewed by us this week here, Captain, as we heard in part one, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children were involved in this investigation because we did have two missing children and they helped with viewing the border camera footage. So in honor of their good work, half of this week's beer fund will be donated to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. That clip right there, Captain, very clear, very concise, well-delivered by the sheriff, by Sheriff McMahon there, to tell us about the very general stages of the investigation leading up to the point of the discovery of the bodies, San Bernardino County taking over the investigation, which then led to the arrest of Charles Chase Merritt. And the bodies were found in November of 2013. And the press conference where they tell us that we have identified the two adult bodies as that of Joseph and Summer McStay took place on November 15th. The press conference clip that you just heard was almost exactly one year later. November 7th, 2014 is when they announced to the public, hey, two days ago, we just arrested business associate Chase Merritt for the murders of the entire McStay family. And a lot of these cases, it's hard to get one good suspect. In this one, we have a handful of people that really need to be looked into. What separates Chase from the rest of these other suspects? I think it's the specific information that they have on Chase, where the others look like potentially good suspects. However, we can't place them with one or any of the victims around the time that they are attacked and killed with the exception of Michael McStay stating that he drove by the family's home either on the 4th or the 6th of February. What we do know is that Chase Merritt is saying, I had a meeting with my boss, Joseph, that day. We met at a Chick-fil-A, and we had a a several hours long meeting that was all about business. We exchanged some checks, and it was a very casual meeting. However, When police do their due diligence and they start looking into that meeting that took place on the same day that they believe that the family was attacked and killed, they can't find any evidence that such a meeting took place, let alone a several hours long meeting at a Chick-fil-A. There's no financial evidence that backs up that the two had lunch together and had this casual long meeting at Chick-fil-A. Nothing in Chase's records, nothing in Joseph's records from their credit cards. We also don't find any receipts that somebody paid cash for that day. We can't find anybody at Chick-fil-A that says we saw the two guys having a meeting here. There's no proof of them being at the Chick-fil-A on surveillance footage. So right away, what we have here, just from that one particular spot in our timeline is we have one guy telling us a story that we cannot verify with anyone else. And we can't use any of Joseph's information to verify that, that that actually took place and went down the way that he says it went down. What we do know that took place is that we have several communications between Chase and Joseph on February 4th. We do know that that took place. But we can't say that this long meeting took place. And in fact, once you start to hear the prosecution and law enforcement's narrative 
of how they believe that all of this went down, uh, you can figure out very quickly that they think that a whole lot of different stuff was happening rather than what Chase Merritt was telling them took place. And to reiterate, it was a huge mistake in my mind to not take their disappearance more seriously from the get-go. And because we have this time gap of about four years, this really ties law enforcement's hands. But I also think that it ties the hands of suspects as well. Because if you start asking me questions about something that happened a year ago, I'm going to have a difficulty remembering certain details or remembering certain things that maybe could corroborate my story. The big problem for Chase is there will be evidence against him that cannot be changed, that cannot be just one person's opinion or one person telling you this is what happened. No, because they know that based off of computer evidence and off of financial records and cell phone activity, that some of what Chase is telling them is not truthful and not factual. And those things are taking place on or near February 4th, and then again on February 6th. And so his story gets very weird and very wonky and looks very bad for him right away once they start digging into this information. So what do they find here? They find that Charles Chase Merritt is an ex-felon, and he was actually on probation at the time, and there was a warrant out for his violation of that probation. Now, what was his charges against him, his previous charges? None of them were violent acts or for a violent act, but these included, but were not limited to stolen property. I'm sorry, receiving stolen property, burglary, petty theft, grand theft, and then other crimes. And then when they're interviewing him, he's talking about Joseph in the past tense, saying Joseph was a great guy. Joseph was one of my best friends. Joseph was the kind of guy that would give you the shirt off of his back. Now, that looks pretty incriminating because when he's making these statements to law enforcement, the family's still missing. Nobody's been found. Nobody's been recovered. None of that has happened yet. And so this all looks very bad for Merritt. Yeah, now, just to play devil's advocate because they were missing for a time period, I think a lot of people that were close to him kind of started to expect the worst. The other thing that is going to look real bad for him is the QuickBooks activity, the phone calls and cell phone activity. Now, Captain pointed out something very interesting and something that is exactly spot on. Not only do we need to put our suspect near or in the McStay family home on the day that they were attacked and killed, but we also need to put our suspect at the location where their bodies are later recovered. And we have a situation here that Chase Merritt's cell phone on February 6th, 2010, which is believed to be two days after the McStay family was killed, his cell phone pings off of a tower that you can actually see with the naked eye from the gravesite in the desert near Victorville, California. Bum, bum, dun, 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 dun. And let's remember the site of the grave site is roughly 100 miles from the McStay family house. And thank you for reminding us, and thank you, Captain, for reminding us of that, because I believe earlier I said 70 miles away, when in fact it is nearly 100 miles away. 70 miles was the distance between where they found the McStay family vehicle mm -hmm. from their home near the border. And look, by Chase Merritt's own admission, here's something that he says that is very insightful, but this is a man that he's going to say that he is not guilty. He's not going to plead guilty to this. He's going to have to go to trial. He says, I didn't kill the McStay family. He says, Joseph was one of my best friends, if not my best friend at the time. I would never do that. I'm not a violent man. I'm not a killer. But he also says that cell phone tower information is not 100% accurate. We know that from several other cases that we've reviewed here in the garage. But by his own admission, he says tower info isn't so inaccurate that it's going to put you in the wrong city. 
This puts him 100 miles away from their home, and it puts him many, many miles away from his own home. He has an excuse. He says that he has family that lives in the general area and that he may be visiting family. However, when we hear from his sister, we get two completely different stories. One, I never see my brother. I think the last time I've seen him was about five years ago. She lives in this Victorville area. And then later, when he has to go to trial, several years later, says, well, no, I would see my brother all of the time. All the time I saw my brother. Well, Chase Merritt, they have a unique family history when it comes to crime because his brother was actually arrested and they were going to charge him with being the hillside strangler. So his argument is, well, we had a family member that once was accused of a horrible crime. And so when they were asking my sister about if I ever visited or when's the last time she saw me, she just kind of made up nonsense because she wasn't going to give answers to police. She didn't want to put her brother in the area when she's originally asked, but it doesn't matter because his cell phone puts him in the area. Well, she didn't know that it, it benefits him to be put in the area. You see what I'm saying? When they go, well, have you seen your brother lately? Uh, no, but really the correct answer to protect your brother is, yeah, I see him all the time. No, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's however she wants it to be when she needs it to be that way. Right. When she is unaware that it benefits him to have been in the area frequently, she says, no, he's never in the area. And when she does find out for certain and is told by his defense team, it benefits your brother if you say that he was in the area all the time. That's when her story changes. And like the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office detective says, this is one of the most powerful statements that I have seen in any of this case. And in this case that took several years, one to find the victims and then several more years to bring this thing to trial and to see it through. This is one of the most powerful statements where the detective says, quote, there is no other business to be done out here. He's talking about that stretch of desert where there is nothing out there. There's no reason to be out there. There's no business that can be can be conducted out there. He's basically saying the only reason why somebody would come out here might be to bury some bodies. Well, prosecution's case makes a lot more sense and law enforcement's case makes a lot more sense against Chase Merritt when you do watch the documentary because you get to see the visuals and to see when they're filming the detective at the gravesite, there's nothing around. Right. It's just miles and miles of desert. And that's not all that's going to tie Chase to this case. Um, a large part of it will be these quick book QuickBooks activity that took place before Joseph McStay disappeared. There was fraudulent QuickBooks activity in the company. Somebody was going into their QuickBooks and issuing checks to you guessed it, Chase Merritt and then deleting those checks from the QuickBooks records. And we find out that not only is he an ex-felon, but he's also an individual with a gambling problem and that he was struggling financially for months leading up to Joseph's murder, yeah, to the McStay family's murder. To the point where he's having so much difficulty financially that they would close his account out. Correct. He had lost thousands of dollars at the casinos. They were already having what would appear to me based off of the QuickBooks information that I reviewed, that they were already having some discussions, probably arguments and disagreements about money leading up to this money and these fake checks, fraudulent checks being issued for Chase Merritt. And when I say they, I mean between Joseph and Chase. Now, what's even more difficult is after it's believed that the McStay family was killed. This fraudulent activity continues on QuickBooks where checks are being issued to Chase Merritt 
backdated to the 4th of February, cached, and then the information deleted from QuickBooks. Then what we have is on at least two occasions, somebody calls QuickBooks demanding that all of the information for Earth-inspired products for the company, all of the QuickBooks information be deleted, scrubbed from their servers. The person on the phone says that he is Joseph McStay, the owner and operator of the company, the person that has the administrator rights to QuickBooks for the company. However, all of this stuff is recorded. All of this information is recorded for customer service quality purposes, right? And so when they record this information, what they figure out is the person calling, claiming to be Joseph McStay is calling from Chase Merritt's cell phone. Well, that don't look so good. That looks awful. I think that's something that you need to put a pin in because to be impersonating somebody that's missing. So someone's hacking into QuickBooks, writing themselves checks. Chase Merritt is issuing checks to Chase Merritt. Chase Merritt is cashing those checks before Joseph McStay is killed and after Joseph McStay is killed and then trying to delete all of the activity on QuickBooks, which ultimately will be his undoing when it comes to the trial and comes to court. The person calling in is calling from Chase Merritt's cell phone, claiming to be the now vanished, the now dead and murdered Joseph McStay. I mean, this stuff is, this guy claims to be innocent. I don't think that you can have this activity happening at the same time and him be innocent. If you do watch this documentary, I think the people that are going to frustrate you the most is the way the prosecutors act during the trial. It's very childish. It's almost like they forgot that there was four people murdered and that this case is very serious. I mean, they giggle like little schoolgirls. Yeah. But it's, it's like watching people like freshmen in high school chuckling in study hall. But I can state that I think their opening statements made the most sense. This case is all based off of circumstantial evidence. There is no smoking gun in this case. So they have to build a mountain of evidence. And I think they they do that pretty well against Chase Merritt. The other thing that's going to frustrate you if you watch the documentary is Dan Cavanaugh. Because there's plenty of reasons to go, this guy's a creep. He's a weirdo. He's a strange bird. And oh, it looks like he was trying to cash in on Joseph McStay being missing as well. So he's somebody that will frustrate you. But I think that once you look at everything, the totality of the evidence and information against Chase Merritt, personally, and I know that a lot of people may disagree with me, I think they got the right guy. We did not go through some of his cell phone information, right? We we mentioned that his cell phone pinged at that tower near the gravesite out in the middle of the desert. Right. But his other cell phone information is he's off the grid for several hours on February 4th. I actually think what happened is we have Joseph McStay who is calling his bank repeatedly and he's checking in and out of QuickBooks repeatedly on February 4th. Who else is he calling on February 4th? Chase Merritt. I think that Joseph McStay discovered what Chase was up to, the missing money, the checks that were being issued and then deleted from QuickBooks. I think he discovered this and figured out this guy is ripping me off. And I think he confronted him about that. I'm not going to take it any steps further to say that, oh, he fired him or he put him on notice or they had a physical altercation. I don't know, because just like the prosecution pointed out in their opening statement, they don't have all the answers. They're not going to be able to answer every single thing for you other than we believe and have evidence to prove it that Chase Merritt killed this family of four. And we believe that the motive was simple. It was greed and it was fraud. And that he was trying to cover those up and that for whatever reason, 
Maybe he was confronted by Summer at the home. We talked about her being aggressive and standing up for her family and not holding back when it comes to talking with people and confronting people. Right. Maybe she said something to him and he flipped out and smacked her in the head with the sledgehammer. And then he had to kill the rest of the family. Maybe he went after Joseph McStay because he was fired and figured out, Summer, she's a pretty smart woman. She knows that I was supposed to be meeting with her husband today. She knows that I'm at the home meeting with her husband this evening. And for me, I kind of throw the the video, the security video out the window. Anytime we have a situation, a scenario where at trial, we have one expert for the prosecution telling us, this is what I see. This is what my experience tells me. And then we have a witness for the defense saying, well, this is what I see. And this is what my experience tells me. And one is for the prosecution. One is for the defense. I look at that and I toss them both out the window because if they both were 100% experts, they should have the same opinion mm-hmm. at the end of the day. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. Maybe one is right and the other is wrong. I don't know. I couldn't see anything in that damn video to tell me anything different. So I think you can throw that out. It's interesting too that there are more than there are plenty of people that have a white SUV or a white truck. Yeah, well, and we both think that it's more likely that it was the McStay family vehicle. Yes. But here's a couple things to 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 argue that Chase is innocent. You could look at his history. He's not a violent person, not known to be violent. He might have had some issues financially, but that doesn't make you a murderer. Like, oh, I, I'm going to have a gambling problem also. Now he's a murderer of four individuals. I also think that this cell phone records... And this cell phone ping technology, I actually think it's a load of malarkey. And here's why. It's because on Joseph's phone, they have a call that Joseph made to Chase on the 4th. It's in Joseph's call log. It never shows up on Chase's call log. So therefore, we have, we have evidence that... This log doesn't match this log. So how much information is each cell phone log missing? Because we have proof that there are missing items from cell phone logs. But only on Chase Merritt's end. So here's the problem. The reason for, the explanation for why you would have a call that is logged on Joseph's but not Merritt's call logs is that Chase Merritt was off the grid, that either his phone was turned off, it was in airplane mode, or it was in a location where he could not receive phone calls. And so the call never registered on his end because his phone never received the call. The call registered on Joseph McStay's end because his phone made that call. And so the disconnect is the call not actually going through. And it's the belief of the prosecution that by this point, the attack had already occurred and Chase Merritt, his phone is off and knowing that his phone is off, attempted to cover his tracks by using Joseph McStay's phone to call his phone to make it look like Joseph was still alive at that time. Now, again, his phone is off or unavailable airplane mode or not able to be reached by any cell phone towers for several hours that day. The other thing that's happening in this scenario is the fact that his wife or common law wife at the time is calling him repeatedly looking for him or trying to get in contact with him. And again, her call log shows that those calls were made from her phone. His call log does not register any of those calls because his phone never received the calls. Well, and she also later it tries to become his alibi and I don't think she's a bad person by any means. I think she's just misremembering again, the, the time difference really kind of handcuffs law enforcement, but it also handcuffs the suspect and any of their eyewitnesses because for her to remember that one day so vividly with so many details, um, I don't think she's lying necessarily. I think that she is misremembering and I think she wants to believe what she's telling law enforcement because it makes her, it makes the father of her children not 
this horrible monster. Well, and in her defense, too, if, look, we all want to do the right thing, or at least most of us do. Clearly, somebody or some ones in this situation didn't want to do the right thing. But, you know, in a world where you're going, I don't know if I remember this correctly or not, most of us, most of us I think, would err on the side of caution of, okay, yeah, I, if I can't remember it 100%, I'm going to err on the side of caution that benefits my loved one. Right. The person that I have believed and I am telling you could not be responsible for this. And it's unclear when she's being asked to deliver this information to the authorities. We don't know if it's days after they went missing, years after they went missing, or years after they, you know, or even after they had arrested Chase Merritt. Yeah, which would be roughly what, five year difference, four and a half, five year difference. Uh, yes, it would be over four years after they disappeared that Chase Merritt is arrested. And then it takes longer for it to go to trial. Now, one thing here, Captain, is he is convicted. He is convicted of this. And the documentary that we've recommended is out now. And from my understanding, it was originally recorded on the request of his defense team. And I think this is really interesting to me because I understand that the prosecution thought that they were at some kind of disadvantage, which I don't get. I think that th this prosecution crew seems a little, like you said, a bit childish at times, probably a little more whiny than they need to be. If I was part of this prosecution team and I saw this documentary, I'd be embarrassed. And if I was their family members, I'd be embarrassed. The, the head prosecutor, if I was his wife, I would divorce him on how embarrassing he is. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. And maybe that's why they felt like they were at a disadvantage with cameras rolling, because maybe this is their typical behavior. Well, you have to remember this. I'm telling you, this is embarrassing. And I, and I go by a fake name. I don't even <laughs> own a boat. <laughs> well, the thing is here with this documentary, I like this idea you know, it turned out to be a really good idea in the West Memphis three case. The, in some other cases, they've done this where rather than going back retroactively and telling you about a true crime story and how it played out in court, where they're actually filming it for the purposes of possibly making a documentary later that will include the true crime story plus the trial. I think that transparency is key. We know that our system is not perfect. I happen to believe that it is it is one of the best in the world and that it would be impossible to have a perfect system. So I think that knowing that, I love having some transparency. And let's open up our doors. Let's open up the communication and let's show the public what's going on and how it's going down. It could only benefit and better us all in the end. If you find this case interesting then I would take the time to watch Two Shallow Graves, which is on Discovery ID. It's pretty quick to get through, even though it's seven parts. You can fast forward through the commercials. It seems like some of the episodes only feel like they're about 30 minutes long after you get rid of the commercials. You also get to see these individuals on camera, how they interact with people. They do a really good job of diving a little bit deeper than we did into the suspects because because the defense team did. We kind of dove as deep as law enforcement did. And law enforcement, as they were digging into these individuals, found things that pointed towards their innocent or pointed towards a solid alibi. But I would recommend it. I wouldn't say it's the best documentary I've watched, but it's definitely entertaining, informative, and I'd give it two thumbs up, three and a half bottle caps out of five. What would you rate it? I don't want to comment. I mean, we've already recommended it um, in, in today's recommended reading. Um, but in, in the end, what we have here, Captain, is on in June of 2019, the San Bernardino County jury found Chase Merritt guilty of murdering the McStay family, as we said earlier. In this case... We had jury recommendations for punishment for Chase Merritt, and the jury recommended life imprisonment for the murder of Joseph McStay, 
death penalty for the murder of Susan McStay, death penalty for the murder of Gianni McStay, death penalty for the murder of Joseph Jr. McStay. In the end, Merritt was in fact sentenced to death. A tricky case here. We want to hear from you. Make sure you go to truecrimegarage.com. Go to our blog page and let us know what you think about this case. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading this week? Let's go with some recommended viewing. We would be remiss if we did not recommend Two Shallow Graves, which was featured on the ID channel, also available on Discovery+. Plus. It's seven episodes about this exact case, the McStay family murder case. You'll want to check that out, Two Shallow Graves. That's on our website, on our recommended page, along with other good books, other good podcasts, other TV shows, true crime all around for you to watch, listen, and read. Check that out at truecrimegarage.com. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.